After marking again that song that Brother Andrew asked us to mark, we'll devote the next few moments to a consideration of a section, a part of the Word of God. Perhaps as Cale mentioned earlier, so good to see each person out this evening. Our membership and all that have come our way, it's our true and earnest desire to lift high the banner of the Word of God, the unassailable character of it, the truth that's embedded within it, so that you and I might be motivated and challenged to live in a way that would honor, glorify, and please the all-seeing eyes of our Heavenly Father. The baptism of our Lord. This evening, why don't you and I spend a few moments and cast a spotlight and perhaps revisit in a very dramatic way through the imagination of, of course, the revelation of the Word of God, picturing again, reconsidering again, the features of that text that was read in our hearing just a moment ago. I hope that you kept that text open near the close of Matthew chapter 3. In verses 13 and following, we have that inspired record given in some detail, that scene on which our Savior Himself submitted to the act, wonderfully stated, of that of baptism. Why don't you and I give again some appreciation to that, and why don't we begin with these introductory thoughts? As you can see, perhaps, on that slide, the word baptize is a oft-used word by you and me. In fact, it is a word that finds frequent application in religious discussions and religious circles. Sadly enough, on many occasions, the emphases and the truth is not a direct part of that which is often taught. But consider for a moment these features and these facts. That word occurs 115 times in the King James Version of the Bible. That alone would highlight how significant it is. If our God only mentioned it once, that would be sufficient. And yet, we have so many New Testament verses, some of which occurred, by the way, in the Gospel accounts. The book of Acts, of course, makes oft reference to it. The next 21 New Testament epistles also cast an exceedingly strong spotlight on the vital and impressive role that baptism played in the first century and if certainly by inspiration, is still played today. You'll then notice about the middle of the slide. It brings us to perhaps note that baptism continues to be a source of confusion, perplexion, even bewilderment in the mind of some. But it need not be so. In fact, if one merely allows the Word of God to do the speaking, the message becomes very clear, and it becomes rather plain, doesn't it? As you and I close that slide, why don't we then revisit the Lord's baptism? That is, the one to which He submitted. Admittedly now, it was the one administered by John. But in fact, that will offer to you and I an opportunity to think about our own baptism today, to revisit some impressive characteristics of it. And so it is, let's in fact place the setting of this text in Matthew chapter 3. John the Immerser. John was a rugged man. He was one, as far as the New Testament informs us, John would tell you what was on his mind. He didn't beat around the bush much. And you and I remember he, of course, ate locusts and wild honey. He wore a leathern girdle. Furthermore, he didn't wear soft clothing. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus asked some on that occasion, What went ye out for to see, a man in soft clothing? If you and I were to have seen John, he would have appeared in a very direct and rugged 
characterization almost certainly. And certainly it would only take a few moments in conversation with him that you would appreciate immediately what was on his heart and the thoroughness of the message he brought. It is with that in mind, I would invite you to notice some of the things we learn about this John. Remember, the features closing Matthew chapter 3 have many verses previous to it. What subject did John preach? And how did he preach it? And how did the baptism that he taught fit into it? Consider this with me. John was another individual very clearly spoken of in the Old Testament. I know that you and I are well aware of the fact that the Old Testament spoke oft about Jesus coming. But did you realize that the Old Testament also predicted the coming of the forerunner of Jesus? It predicted one who would be the clarion messenger who would prepare the way for the coming of the Great One. Isaiah chapter 40 verses 1 and following is a masterpiece detailing the life of this one who is the forerunner, the preparer of the way for none other than Jesus Himself. And so it was in Matthew chapter 3 verse 3. For this is He that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness... Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make His path straight. Now the inspired writer Matthew there quotes from the Old Testament and applies it to John. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Not only that, appreciate that John rather powerfully taught a message that involved repentance. I know that you and I are aware of the fact that the New Testament frequently makes mention of repentance, highlighting the change of mind that manifests itself in a change of behavior, a change of action. John taught that as well. May I direct your attention to Matthew 3 verse 8? Bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance. Consider this with me. In those verses that just precede that little passage we just read, all, in fact, a great number of people from around Judea and Jerusalem had come out to John and said, We want to be baptized of you. Now, you and I today would be thrilled if there was a multitude of people so interested in the things that are taught from this pulpit and this congregation that they'd be desirous of being immersed. And yet John sensed that something about their understanding might not quite have been complete. He said, you've got to repent. You've got to bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. You see, the message that John preached was not just an arbitrary and trivial, let's immerse folks to say we've done it. He wanted their hearts to be motivated and appreciative of the overwhelming change that's required to serve the God of heaven. Aren't we all reminded of Matthew 6, 24? You cannot serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or else you'll hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon. It would seem that John at least appreciated in them that this desire that they had for baptism wasn't an overwhelming relinquishing of person, if you please, to the service of God. Thus, bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. As you and I look further, notice John also in verse number 6 of this chapter, "...and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins." You notice that John also brought a message that involved a confession. Sins need to be confessed. 
you and I notice that our God has an all-seeing appreciation and an all-seeing eye, and He would desire that you and I follow a passage like this, confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Verse 16 of the closing chapter of the book of James. Maybe as you and I think then about some of the message that John brought, picture it with me. Here's a man not preaching in the middle of the city, not preaching even in its suburbs. He's out in the wilderness, in fact, near the Jordan River. You and I might well describe it as a desolate area, and yet people were traveling distances to hear this man preach and to be immersed by him. As you give thought to then the kind of impetus that drove many people to travel that distance, to come to that location, to hear this man preach, look at what comes up next. As a part of his message, John rather forcefully taught the following truth. There's one greater than I coming after me. Now, clearly they already had heard much about John. Word of mouth had already spread a great deal of interest in the preaching and that which this man stood for. And yet he was quick to say, I must decrease, he must increase. John, you see, spoke about one coming after him. He said, I'm not worthy to stoop down and unloose the latchet of his shoes. John understood that he was privileged to be the forerunner, but he knew he wasn't the Messiah. And he time and again directed attention to the one greater than he, to the one who really was the anointed of God. Maybe it's in light of those things. We now appreciate a bit about this baptizing effort on the part of John. Did you notice? It took place at the Jordan River. You'll notice again in verse number 5 of this chapter, it says, Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea, and all the region round about Jordan, all around the Jordan River. Now keep in mind, it was a bit of a distance of travel from Jerusalem to Jordan, and yet there were individuals from all over that region coming to John. Could we cast a spotlight on this? What was special about this? Why not go into town where the people were? One thing to keep in mind and of course, the book of John casts a bit of a spotlight on this at John 3.23. John was baptizing near Anon because there was much water there. The kind of baptizing that John was doing, you see, which is the only kind ever spoken of in the Word of God, is baptizing and involves a great deal of water. It can't be done with a cup full, a dipper full, or a glass full. It requires much water, and here is where that great man John was baptizing. In addition to that, you'll notice that that brings us then to the lesson text. Beginning in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 3, the first word is then. In the midst of this context, identifying the kind of person that John was and the success he appeared to be having and the message that he brought. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. Pausing there, you'll notice that Jesus came from Galilee. Now, it may well have involved a fair journey by travel on foot to come from Galilee all the way to where John was baptizing. But the text says, 
Jesus came for a reason. He wasn't merely paying John a social visit. He wasn't merely going to have supper with him. He came to be baptized of him. Let's go to the next verse. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? May you and I appreciate that John recognized the Master. He identified him, knew exactly who he was. And he, at first, was not in agreement to baptize him. I suppose any of us who have had the privilege of immersing someone, you realize that we really have very little part in it. It's the great act of God in the cleansing of that person's sins and their submission to the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ. The preacher just happens to be privileged to be the one to immerse the person. But John recognized something very special here. This is the Son of God. This is the one who, in fact, is soon going to die for the sins of all humanity. And in so doing, John at first refused. I have need to be baptized of you, and you're coming to me? Let's read on. And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. As we look a little bit further, we notice that the initial refusal that John uttered, he understood his unworthiness compared to the perfection of Jesus. He understood his condition in light of the perfect Son of God. And yet, we notice that Jesus answered in verse 15 and said, Suffer it to be so now. Permit it to be so. And you'll notice the Lord continued by saying, For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. We'll have more to say about that a bit later in the lesson. But aren't you overwhelmed with the nature? Here the Master maybe had walked some distance and He comes and John refuses. And in the perfection of Jesus, knowing exactly the heart of John, He offered the perfect response. Suffer it to be so. You'll notice it had to do with righteousness. Verse number 15 closes by saying, Thus he suffered him. John agreed. He finally acquiesced to the request of Jesus. As you'll notice on that slide, the statement that Jesus made leads us to verse number 16. And Jesus, when he was baptized went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Isn't it rather fascinating as you look at some of those final remarks? Jesus, when he was baptized... This was an event that was very moving, very compelling. It was very significant. In fact, there are those who have made a listing of the supposed eight greatest moments in the life of Jesus. And this is one of them. It was an overwhelming thing in many ways, and you and I appreciate that in it, in it, we notice the thunderous voice of the God of heaven God the Father uttered and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, isn't it so? 
as you reflect on that, here is God in light of this event, this baptism, this decision of submission on the part of Jesus. And yet the Father said, I'm well pleased with that which is taking place. Baptism, as you and I think of that which we've read, and perhaps some additional implications as we think about baptism later presented in the New Testament. As we turn the slide and proceed to the next, we're going to begin to notice a few points, a few lessons. Let's look at them one at a time. Lesson number one. <clears throat> this opening observation may appear to be obvious, but nonetheless, it appears to me to be a vital point to observe in passing. Isn't it true that baptism is an act of choice? John didn't go and get Jesus and make Him come to the river. John didn't go coerce the Lord while he was perhaps age five and make Him come. Neither did his daddy and neither did his mother. It was a, it was a volitional choice on the part of Jesus. It was a matter considerate of the fact that it is a decision a person must make for him or herself. You can't make someone else do it, and you can't coerce them. As you and I develop that point, Jesus again went to the Jordan. He went to John with a desire to submit to the act of baptism. Not only that, you'll notice that this says something else. Maybe you have read articles or heard others make statements about this across the centuries. There are some who are under the illusion that baptism is merely a mental appreciation. One doesn't have to submit to an act. It's only what goes on in the mind. That's nonsense. If that's all there was, why couldn't Jesus have mentally subscribed to it far back in Galilee and not have come here? You'll notice it required an actual submission to a physical act, in this case, an immersion beneath water. There's no way to figuratize that to the point that it's merely something that one believes only, or that it's merely something to which one gives mental appreciation. That isn't enough. Baptism is more than that. One final thing about that. Doesn't that at least correspond to so many other verses as you and I remember them in the New Testament? Consider with me that baptism that relates to the one that, the Jesus, that Jesus Himself spoke of in relation to, to salvation. The Master had already been crucified. He had already been raised. That Sunday morning had come, and in the weeks that followed, He taught those apostles and encouraged them in light of things that they were to go and preach. Mark 16, verses 15 and 16 said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. In the midst of that presentation, he admonished those apostles, You go and preach. You set forth the truth required of heaven. Then he said, He that believeth. Notice he didn't say, You forcefully baptize them. You make them be, become disciples. God won't do that to anybody. He implores, He encourages, He invites. He begs us to seriously consider the nature of our life here and what's coming at judgment, but He won't make us obey Him. He leaves that to our discretion and to our decision. And of course, that's true of baptism, isn't it? 
It wouldn't be right for you and I, not even one of our own children, to force them to be baptized because that's not reasonable. Maybe that old maxim that we have often reflected upon is still pertinent. A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. And the Lord requires these things to be prerequisite to baptism. Just putting somebody beneath water only puts them, makes them wet. Baptism requires much more than that. But it starts with a choice. Isn't it fair then to say, as you and I reflect on our own baptism or those times we've witnessed someone else humbly submit to that, it is a fantastic thing to observe, isn't it? Because as you see that old man die to sin and the new one rise to life, you see a metamorphosis, a genuine change. And in so doing, the concourse of life has been set because of the decision that person has made. What about lesson two? In addition to this first one, although we've highlighted it in passing, let's perhaps say a little more of it. John, you see, was rather careful as to where he took care of this baptizing. Although we noted it earlier, would you look to John chapter 3? The larger context, I think, will be helpful to you and me for just the next moment. In John chapter 3, verse 23 will be our focus. It says, John was baptizing in Enon near to Salem. Now, those were locations, again, along the Jordan River Valley. And as such as these were well-recognized places at the Jordan, it says, because there was much water there. Question, why was John baptizing here and not somewhere else? Why was it here and not a couple of hundred feet downstream? The geography of the Jordan River is very interesting. You and I know the Bible has so very much to say about the Jordan. It appears in some Old Testament passages and quite often in the New. The Jordan River, there are places in that river that are reasonably deep, and there are other places that are extremely shallow. In fact, so shallow that, of course, when the rainy season comes and those snows on Mount Carmel and Mount Hermon melt, it can cause the Jordan to overflow noticeably her banks. One of the first scenes in the book of Joshua is that very thing. The point again to be made is there are places along the Jordan where one could appreciate a rightful place to immerse someone beneath water and other places much too shallow, much unsatisfactory for that. John was baptizing in a place where there was much water. When you and I think then about those attributes... Isn't it fascinating not only to note that, but to notice what it says about Jesus in the act of the baptism. It says in verse number 16, Jesus, when He was baptized, went up out of the water. Now, I think we all know that throughout the ages, there's been a great deal of controversy about does sprinkling qualify for baptism? Is it possible to take some water, dip your finger in it, and sprinkle it on someone? Does that qualify? Or perhaps do you take a spoonful and pour it on the person's head? Does that qualify? May I say, if one is willing to neglect, ignore, and bypass the Bible, maybe so. But we all know that won't save anybody. Notice again in this passage, John was baptizing where much water was, and Jesus went up out of the water. 
He had been in it. Not only that, isn't it fascinating to appreciate the following? That scene concerning that Ethiopian nobleman in the 8th chapter of Acts, verses 36 to 40, or rather verses 26 to 40. And in those early days of the gospel ministration, we easily appreciate that here Philip had been challenged by the Holy Spirit to join himself to a chariot. There was a man in that chariot reading from the scroll of Isaiah as he was reading from it. He was reading a section, a passage in which one was described as being led to the shearers dumb. The nobleman asked, who is the writer talking about here? Is he speaking of himself or of some other man? We are fantastically reminded in verse 35 of Acts 8 that Philip began at that passage and preached to that man Jesus. He started from that very location, from that very placement. Among other things, doesn't that impress you and me with the knowledge Philip had of the Old Testament? Would you and I have been able to do that? Here's a person who's asked a question. Sir, could you explain Isaiah 53 to me? Who was the author talking about? Was it himself or somebody else? Would you and I have enough knowledge of the Word of God to start at that point and preach to somebody Jesus? Philip did it. Two verses later, that man said, Here is water. What does hinder me to be baptized? The message that Philip delivered so involved the Master and so involved his teaching concerning baptism that this nobleman knew that he needed to do that and he knew that he needed to urgently. And therefore, they stopped along the way. Philip baptized him. But along that way, isn't it noted that they both had been down in the water? Doesn't that again suggest that merely sprinkling nor pouring was satisfactory? It required an immersion. For those reasons, isn't it fair to notice that the Bible clearly identifies that baptism is a burial? Would you come with me to Romans chapter 6? Beginning in verse 1 of that chapter, the inspired writer said, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death." that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Did you notice the statement? We are buried with Him. How? By baptism into death. Baptism is likened to a burial. May I suggest, in a burial you do not sprinkle a little dirt on, on a corpse. The state of Tennessee in the funeral procession there will not permit that. That's against the law. You don't bury something, a body, that way. Furthermore, you don't pour a little dirt on it. Burial requires complete submersion, doesn't it? And so it is, as you and I then submit to that act in water, that's what the Master has described, and that's what John even understood. Not only that... Let's close that slide by highlighting that reference to a burial here reminds us again of other passages in which that likeness is described. We've noted several times, didn't we, how the old man of sin, having died in the act of repentance, is buried. And the new creature 
rises in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17. What about lesson 3? Not only are these things perhaps to be observed, but here's yet another one. Isn't it also true that we see in the choice and the decision that Jesus made something of the importance attached to baptism? Again, isn't it interesting that there have been those who have asserted, sometimes even forcefully, that baptism, although it's useful, isn't that important. Now, please be observant. There are individuals who've said that. The Word of God doesn't say that. Isn't it true that we learn something here that when Jesus was ready to start His public ministry, He made a careful deliberate, concise decision. A decision to be immersed in water by John at Jordan. And in so doing, it would in fact identify something vital related to righteousness. Let's develop some of these points like this. In verse number 14 of this chapter in which we've been studying, you'll notice initially John was hesitant. May I ask, if there's nothing to baptism as some perhaps would lead us to believe, why was John hesitant? If there's nothing to it, then what does it matter? But you and I know that John knew better than that. There was something vital, something significant, something intensely important in relation to it, so much so that John was hesitant. It took the kind words of our Savior to convince John to proceed with the baptizing. Furthermore, you might notice that today, as you and I look at some of these verses we've seen in passing, like Mark 16 and Acts chapter 8 and Romans chapter 6, it still is true baptism is not an idle activity. That's why you and I take it so seriously. And that's why we strive to teach it in such a way that our youngsters will grow up knowing that importance Maybe you have heard someone in days past who have reflected on their own baptism and said, I really don't remember a lot about that night. I remember it was in a gospel meeting and my friend chose to and I thought it would be a good idea too. That's not the reason to get baptized. Don't do it just because somebody else does. Not because a friend says you might should. It's got to be a personal decision. There's a great deal of importance in it. It may be in light of those things. Notice its prerequisites again. Even as we think about what John taught and what Jesus and others did, belief is a prerequisite. Remember, Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized, He did not put baptism before belief. He put it after it. A person has to believe first. Believing in Jesus as the Son of God, a heartfelt appreciation that this is not just getting wet. It is an overwhelming, relinquishing conviction of my intent to be a deliberate disciple and learner of this one, King Jesus. Not only that, baptism follows repentance. In Acts 2.38, on that scene of that first Pentecost day following the Lord's resurrection, Peter had preached a masterful sermon. Verse 37 says, When they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. Notice, they believed something so strongly that it agitated them. They believed it. And then they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter's reply was, Repent and be baptized. 
Baptism follows repentance. doesn't come before it. One has to begin that process, to begin that circumstance by which you're intending to change the way one thinks so that behavior will also change with it. Finally, you'll notice there was confession. As you think about the places we read that one in the New Testament, you remember that, of course, that Ethiopian nobleman in Acts chapter 8, wasn't it true that there again it was the eunuch who said, Here's water, what does hinder me to be baptized? Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. The eunuch said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Today we ask nothing different in light of those subjects, candidates who would come forward and wish to be baptized. Finally, you might notice on that slide, the conversion accounts in the book of Acts continue to cast a very strong spotlight on baptism and its significance. To your attention, as well as to mine, I might ask that we recall again some other work of Philip in Acts 8, the earlier part of that chapter. As he came into the region of Samaria, he preached with boldness and with power. And verse 12 says, When they heard Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God, they were baptized, both men and women. As they heard Philip preaching, and they understood the nature of that message and how different it was from that which they previously had heard from others, they were baptized. Perhaps in the final analysis on that slide, may I ask that you and I keep in mind just how important that baptism is for us. No word seems to me any stronger than those from the pen of Peter. In 1 Peter 3.21, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Question, Peter, what is it that saves us? He said baptism, and the Holy Spirit prompted him to write that. So may we never be led to think, even though others may assert it, that baptism for some reason is not important. That's not so. The next lesson causes us to consider yet another element in this baptism of our Master. When John was initially hesitant and Jesus answered, the words He used were these, For thus it becometh us, to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. What, I wonder, does that exactly mean? As you and I develop some consideration to that, let's begin like this. First of all, this baptism that's spoken of, this baptism administered by John the Baptist, you might begin by appreciate that Mark 1 verse 4 says that baptism was in light of the repentance for remission of sins. John's baptism, you see, also had in mind a thought surrounding sinfulness and the human condition in which that was in need of some sort of remedy. Furthermore, you might appreciate as we think about Jesus, may we understand this, Jesus did not come to John to be baptized because he, Jesus, was guilty of sin. That's not why he came. In fact, it appears even John recognized that. Again, he said, I have need to be baptized of you, not the other way around. The Lord came for a slightly different reason, you see. But it was a reason very vital, very central, and very significant. 
to fulfill all righteousness. In the act of submission to that baptism, Jesus set before not only John and those of that day, but He set before the attitude of what is right. The consideration of what is right. And remember, that's their basic idea in righteousness. Something that's right. Jesus was teaching that baptism is right. Here is an act to which one needs to subscribe in humility and in directness. It's the right thing to do. Now, you and I know that the baptism administered by John wasn't the perfect and lasting one that was going to be later. Later, there were some disciples that had been baptized under that baptism. They had to be, again, baptized again, according to Acts 19, verses 1 to 9. But the right thing to do. Hold your finger here. Look with me to Luke chapter 7. This is the strongest description that it seems to me occurs in the New Testament in relation to this thing being right. Luke chapter 7. Verses 29 and 30 of that chapter describe this baptism administered by John. It says, And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God, being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. Please note with me that language. Some came to John to be baptized by him, Others refused to be baptized of Him, but in that act of refusal, the text says, they rejected the counsel of God. It was the will of God that individuals living in that day and time submit to the baptism that John administered. And those that didn't rejected God's counsel. Again, it was the right thing to do to submit to that baptism. And the Lord did it, despite the fact He didn't have any sin. If that was so of that baptism, consider with me that baptism administered by Jesus. The one that's a critical part of the new covenant. Is it still the right thing to do? Oh, you and I know the deus. In fact, isn't it still an impressive thing to listen? You go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's Luke, that's Mark's version. Think about Matthew's version of that great commission. All power has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Who, Lord? All nations. Doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was so impressive in that He insisted upon them, you go and teach and it's for every human being. Hopefully, they will respond in submission and in faith, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's still the right thing to do. May we never allow the thinking of men, the writings of men, the assertions of men detract from the sweet rightness attached to baptism. As you think about the right thing to do, as you come to the bottom, I would to all of us, ask that we reflect on Psalm 119, verse 172, near the close of that longest chapter in the Bible. We have something said about singing great glorious praises to God, singing of God's righteousness, for all thy commandments are righteousness. 
I've said a couple of times, it's the right thing to do. It's right because it's in this book. That's what makes it right. And in the New Testament, God commands that those that would be His disciples, His followers, His servants, that they will in fact submit to baptism. That's the only way to have received the benefits and blessings to be found in Jesus Christ. As we come near the close of our lesson tonight, one final lesson and then the lesson will be yours. Although we have hinted at it along the way, we'll close the lesson with one final reflection on the essentiality, the necessity, the absolute requirement on the part of heaven as it relates to baptism. These verses that we have studied in light of the Great Commission and the passages to the Roman brethren, would you appreciate that although men have so often rejected baptism for the purposes that Jesus gave it, it doesn't change what the Master said and it doesn't change what the writers of the New Testament say yet. Baptism doth also now save us. Paul stated it like this in Colossians chapter 2, the operation of God. Now you and I think about an operation. We go to a hospital and it can be a very unnerving thing. You're going to be anesthetized and a doctor is going to operate by cutting you open. The operation of God and yet in the spiritual realm, baptism is the culmination of the operation of God. The cutting out, the removal of that old man of sin. The mentality, the lifestyle that followed that way that was apart from God with the rehearsal of and the putting in place of that life dedicated to a follower of Jesus Christ. This evening as we each think about the baptism of Jesus Himself, remember it said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. When you think about how great heaven must rejoice, when a person who is an alien sinner makes that decision, that determination, that submission to be immersed in Christ, remember when the person comes out of that watery grave, those sins are gone. They are no more. God has forgotten them, for they've been completely forgiven. That means when God looks down from heaven, He sees the pure whiteness of Jesus Christ, the purity of the Lord's blood, the absolute perfection attached to that. I think we each should oft remember the day we were baptized. It really was an eternally significant day. If there's anybody in the audience tonight who maybe has never become a Christian, there will never be a better night than this one. But if you have become a Christian and maybe you've lost sight of what a great day that was for you and the eternal implications that it held, we'd be honored, in fact, if there have been sin of a public character that's engulfed your life, why not come back to Jesus tonight? He still loves you, you know. He still wants you to be a servant of His. He still wants you to finally go to heaven with Him. But at this point, He still leaves the decision to you and me. If there's someone here, one or more, who has not been faithful to that day of baptism and what it first meant to you, why not come back to your first love and allow the submission of Jesus to the righteousness of God to again be the prompting motivation in life? 
If we could help you tonight in that way, we'd be delighted to do it. We'd implore you to come while together we stand and while we sing.